0: Last weekend, on Saturday, I kicked off the conference. The theme of the conference was the cross, and I kicked that off from Isaiah chapter 53. The necessity for the cross is wrapped up in our sinfulness, right? Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was pierced for our iniquities. It was our chastisement. He made peace for us. And so we focused our attention on the universality of sin, on the scope of sinfulness in the human race, and it was just a a sobering thought and a sobering meditation to think about the reality that sin runs rampant and it has not left anyone untouched. All of us were born in Adam's sin, we came out of the womb with a sin nature, and as soon as possible we have acted upon that sin nature. We are guilty before God in the total depravity that means not that we are as sinful as we can be, but that sin touches every facet of our being. And this morning, we're not going to look so much at the universality or the breadth of sin, but the depth of sin, the sinfulness that exists within our own hearts and the guilt that places us outside of the kingdom. By nature, We are outside the kingdom of heaven apart from a savior who would rescue us and bring us into this kingdom. Our pastor in Texas, Tom Pennington, preached a whole series of messages on sinfulness in humanity. And he called that series Bad to the Bone. And that's an accurate description, though it is a cultural one that may have some negative distractions right now. It is an accurate one for the description of our sinful plight. We are bad to the core. That's fundamental. And when we come to these passages, the remainder of chapter 5 in the book of Matthew, Matthew's recounting the Sermon on the Mount to us, our Lord Jesus is speaking, we are going to see put on display the heart sinfulness of our lives. And we're going to see the contrast between the kingdom and those who are outside of the kingdom who are condemned by the law of Christ. I've warned you ahead of time, this is going to be some difficult waters that we will tread through. These are some challenging passages, some challenging subject matter, and yet if we come to them with an understanding that is built on the first half of the Sermon on the Mount, I trust we'll be benefited immensely from this remainder and probably most familiar section of the Sermon on the Mount. Just to kind of reorientate myself, if that's a word, it's not a word, but reorientate myself to this passage. Let's read verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read David's passage from last week, and then I'm going to read all the way through to verse 26, and just kind of set the table for our study. We'll study this morning verses 21 to 26, so read with me in verse 17. Verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, that is the Old Testament as a whole. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete them, to bring them to fruition. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one Yoda or Iota, not a dot, or maybe your translation says a tittle, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Those are the smallest markings in the Hebrew alphabet. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness grasp the weight of this statement as he sits with the crowd... For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you have a greater righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he begins in verse 21 with the application of what we see in verse 19. Here are the commandments of the kingdom. Before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Second illustration in verse 25: Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out, that is, of prison, until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, the logical connection is important for us as we begin, because some of you have not been with us, and it's important for us as Bible students just to constantly go back and to see where we've come from and where we're heading. So let me give you just the logical flow of what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 3 with the Beatitudes. What we find in the Beatitudes are the characteristics of the kingdom. You Remember these? We spent weeks in these. The, the kingdom character is defined for us in verses 3 through 12. They're not commands as much as they are truth statements about those who are within the kingdom. So many claim to be in the kingdom. Many would claim to be followers of Christ. Many would claim him as their king or their savior and lord, master. But these are the characteristics that define the heart and the life of those who are within the kingdom. They're poor in spirit. They're mourning for sin. They're meek. They're hungering and thirsting. They're desperate for righteousness. They're merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. And they're persecuted. That's the overview of the character. And those characteristics come with special promises for the kingdom citizen. First of all, they and they alone will be blessed. They are internally and eternally joyful. It's the deepest and truest sense of happiness it's only found in those who are within the kingdom. Secondly, each one of those characteristics comes with a specific promise to that characteristic. So the second half of the verse in each one of the Beatitudes gives us a specific promise for the kingdom citizen as they live this character from the heart. Poor in spirit, impoverished and bankrupt spiritually, theirs is the kingdom. That's the overarching principle. The mourners will be comforted by God. The meek will inherit the earth. They'll gain. Those who hunger and thirst will be satisfied. What we sang about this morning. The merciful will receive mercy at the judgment. The pure in heart will see God in all of his grandeur. The peacemakers will be called sons of God because their lives will reflect the very character of God himself. And the persecuted will. Well, they will be the inheritors of the kingdom as well. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the bookend promises for this grouping of people. So in verses 3 through 12, we have the character of the kingdom. Now, if we come down to verses 13 through 16, we find not the character of the kingdom, but the effect of the kingdom citizen on the world around him or her. So it's the effect of the kingdom. There is a natural effect that goes along with what we find to be the character of the kingdom citizens. If this is true of your life, then this will be your effect. And the effect that the the believer will have, the kingdom citizen will have, is illustrated for us with two word pictures, salt and light. A preservant and a guide, a shining light in darkness. So several weeks ago we studied the salt and the light, the kingdom effect of the character revealed in the Beatitudes. Okay, that moved us then to last week in our time with David around the Word, where we saw not the kingdom character and not the kingdom effect, but the kingdom standard. The elevation, the exposure, and elevation of the law of God as the standard through the fulfillment of Christ himself. You all spent time thinking through the ramifications of what that entails. The kingdom standard is the law of Christ. The New Testament believer should not operate under some fallacious thought that the law is dead, and now we just exist in grace. There is no standard for us. We just go on our merry way. We do whatever we want to do without consequence under grace. That's called antinomianism. That's just a fancy word for anti-law or rebellion. Christian rebellion, and that is a whole movement within the church today that is antinomian. They are against the law. What we find in verses 17 to 20 is that the law has not been abolished. It has not been done away with. It's not been crushed or thrown in the rubbish heap, but rather it has been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the kingdom is under his law, and we'll see it throughout the remainder of our New Testaments. To relegate the law of God... For you, in the New Covenant in Christ, to the Ten Commandments, which are just one small portion of the whole law that was given in the Mosaic Covenant, for the Old Testament, is to leave yourself shortchanged in your understanding of Scripture. When you read the Old Testament law, you should be drawn to Christ. And when you read your Ten Commandments, you should see the reflection of all of them except one in your New Testaments under the law of Christ. And that one is the keeping of the Sabbath. So we have a myriad of commands from Christ. The law of Christ is revealed to us, and Christ now takes upon himself. He has given us the character, He's given us the effect, He's shown us the standard for this kingdom, His kingdom, His reign and dominion. And now, beginning in verse 21 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, we're going to look at paragraph after paragraph after paragraph. That speak to us of the kingdom demands upon our lives so we've seen the standard now We'll see the ramifications of that standard in the demands for the remainder of this chapter And you'll know them when you see them because they have a steady pattern that you'll read every time you open This portion of scripture Christ will say you've heard it said And then he'll say a definitive but I say to you You've heard it said But I say to you, there's six, but you heard it said, now I say to you statements in the remainder of Matthew chapter 5, and these will expose us at a foundational level, not an exhaustive way, but in a foundational level, we will be exposed to the demands of the king upon his kingdom. Okay, so we'll start with anger today, we'll move to lust next week, divorce, oaths, retaliation, And finally, we'll end with the standard for loving our enemies at the end of chapter 5. Really, the culmination of this portion is found at the end of the chapter. If you have your Bible and you have it open there, you can look at verse 48. We'll look at the end before we get there. Verse 48 outlines for you the weight of what Christ reveals in this chapter. You, therefore, based on everything that we've just talked about, must be what? What's the word that's there? Perfect. You must be perfect. You say, okay, perfect means mature, means complete. There's got to be something other than perfection talked about here. Well, we run into a real snag because the next phrase defines for us the perfection that is demanded of us in the kingdom. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So the weight of the demand is overwhelming because the standard is perfection, and the standard is a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who took God's law most seriously in an external sense, though they missed the true intent of the law. Okay, So that is the foundation upon which we're going to build. We've seen the character, we've seen the effect, we've seen the standard, and now we're going to look at the demands. And this will take us, in God's providence, Lord willing, six weeks to go through these six paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, right? David did a great job last week of unpacking verses 17 to 20. Christ is seen there establishing the law as eternal and everlasting, the law in himself as the fulfillment of the law. He completed it. He filled it. He brought it to completion. And now we move forward to encounter specific demands within this kingdom under the domain of the Messiah King himself. Okay, So don't get lost in the scope of what we're dealing with. I don't want you to get lost in the Sermon on the Mount. None of these paragraphs can stand alone. They must be taken as part of a whole, or we will be in danger of misinterpreting them. Okay, So I want to make sure that we review. Now, we're coming to our text this morning, and I trust that you're doing so with an anticipation of encountering Christ and the law of Christ In verses 21 to 26. We should be preparing this morning to see our sin exposed for what it is. And to see our Christ as the substitute that he is. The perfection that he is. To give you a hint into what we'll find this morning in verses 21 to 26. Now I've divided this up just for the sake of clarity into three sections. We'll deal first in verse 21 with physical murder. The cultural understanding. Okay physical murder the cultural understanding is verse 21 and that is that you have heard it said And then we'll move to verse 22 and we'll look at heart anger or heart murder Which is the kingdom demand. So what is the standard for the kingdom? Well, we'll find that in verse 22 and then we'll finish up our time with the application to our lives seen in verses 23 to 26 We've got two illustrations that reveal to us our response What should this generate in us what energy should this generate what response or activity should this? Drive us to right that brings us then to verse 21. You have heard it said Jesus says you have heard it said to those of old You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment Let's begin with the physical murder the cultural understanding this was An axiom within their culture. And it was an axiom because it was derived from the Mosaic Law, revealed in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. Right? You shall not murder. That is the command given. And that was accurately understood by the people. Yet Jesus says that in their understanding, they have somehow missed the boat, their understanding of what that command entailed for their lives. Now, there are a couple of observations we ought to see, or several that we ought to see right off the bat, from you have heard that it was said to those of old. Just point out some things as we're reading our Bibles, trying to keep our eyes open and observe what's there. Jesus' audience was mainly a hearing, not a reading group of people. You may wonder, why is it that Jesus says, you've heard it said to those of old and not you've read in the book of Deuteronomy? Why did he not say in the book of Moses which is the first five books of the Bible, you've read this to be true. Well, the Jewish people as a nation were not a reading group of people as much as they were an oral, traditional-based group of people. So information was passed by those who had it through verbal communication. So the Jewish people, even in their worship, did not have copies of the Old Testament. They would go to the synagogue, they would go to the temple, and they would open the scrolls and listen to the scrolls being read it would listen to the book of moses being read to them so jesus addressing the multitude says you've heard this this is what you've heard and he gives two parts to what they've heard first of all the commandment from exodus 20 verse 13 and deuteronomy 5:17, you shall not murder and then second part was an addition and whoever murders will be liable will be accountable to judgment So there are two parts of what these people have known and understood and have heard passed on from generation to generation. The ones who were of old is a poetic way of speaking of Moses and the prophets, and he's going to continue to use that phraseology that was given to us back in the law or the prophets in verse 17. They were the ones of old who received this word from God that they shall not murder and the speaking here, assumed by Jesus, is accomplished by the Father. Okay, So, you shall not murder is given to those, it was said to those of old, by God himself. That was the people's understanding of this command. Now, understand that murder is the right understanding of what is given to us in Exodus 20, in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, and in Deuteronomy 5. It's not general killing, that was forbidden in every case it was murder that was forbidden how do we know that well we know that capital punishment was endorsed we know that self-defense was endorsed we know that god led his people into war for his own purposes as their king in a theocracy so there was a validation of certain forms of taking of human life but murder was expressly forbidden The malicious taking of life from another human being without cause, without validation, whether intentional or unintentional, was forbidden. And it was to be dealt with with the most severe judgment. Right? Now the second part of that phrase, Jesus says, This is what you've understood, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is not an incorrect idea. That was passed along it's not it's not invalid to say that they'd be liable to judgment if they murdered but there's something there's something greater here in what the Pharisees interpreted and what the scribes interpreted to the people through this statement whoever murders will be liable to judgment the Jewish understanding of verse 21 the commands of Exodus 20 Deuteronomy 5 the seventh commandment in the law of Moses was a purely physical application. Right, That's crucial because you remember that the Sermon on the Mount is all about two things. It's all about the heart, and it's all about the kingdom. So Jesus says, here's what you've understood, and yet there is something much greater at stake in this command. So as the Lord and the fulfillment of the law, Jesus now establishes the law of the Messiah. He reveals the shortcomings of such an external perspective by the culture right that's just a lot of words to say the cultural understanding of the law of god that murder was forbidden and those who murdered would be judged was short of what was intended to be understood and that could only be understood in the revelation of christ himself as the fulfillment so now he is about to speak to us and give us the full weight what god intended for us to understand Murder was not about bodies and blood and someone dying. Guilt was derived by the murderer long before any action was taken. That's what we're going to find in verse 22. So the first of these antithesis statements, these you've heard it, but I tell you statements. Jesus has emphatically established the law of the kingdom of heaven And it will shatter these hearers. It will shatter them because the demand is so much greater than what their external religious leaders had given to them. Right? This is always the case. Right? Any man-made system, any any man-made external law code that's placed on you is always going to be easier than what your Messiah requires of your heart. Always. Any form of Christian legalism that is christians who generate rules and laws and checklists for their christian life it will always be easier to fulfill that man-made system and man-made code than it would ever be to live in the reality of what the sermon and the new testament reveals is to be the heart condition of the kingdom citizen so you can imagine what these people were thinking when they're hearing jesus of nazareth the carpenter's son Say that their understanding Of the Old Testament was now To be enlightened by him And that brings us to verse 22 And here we see heart Murder or heart anger And the kingdom demand Not physical murder and the cultural understanding But heart murder And the kingdom demand in verse 22 But I say to you This will be the mantra of Christ throughout this section I say to To you, there's a contrast. The word but breaks a contrast between what we've just read and what we're about to read. Usually we scan right over conjunctions in our reading. We don't even notice them. But sometimes we should stop and think about what's happening in the grammar of our Bible. And in this case, Jesus is calling a contrast to what he's about to say, to what the scribes and the Pharisees have taught them from the Mosaic Law. Which is unbelievable. And in fact, at the Sermon on the Mount, the people are going to marvel why? Not because of the audacity of what Jesus said, not because of the radical, anti cultural message that he brought. They marvel at the end of the sermon because of his authority, because he did not teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, I say to you, I am authoritative, I am the Son of God, I am the King of this kingdom, I am the Messiah. And therefore, I bring this contrast, this distinction, this filling out of what you have understood in verse 22. Now, just from a grammatical standpoint, if you want to circle or jot, if you're a writer in your margins, the the word I throughout this section is emphatic. We don't really have a way to say that. Um, We can't make it bold or anything that helps us understand. But Jesus is saying, I say to you. It's an emphatic use of the first person i me i'm saying to you as an authority what i'm about to say okay now here is revealed the antithesis statement you've heard it said but now here's what i say to you everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment and so he addresses not the command from the mosaic law but he addresses the pharisaic and scribal interpretation of that law right that whoever does a murder or commits a murder is then liable to judgment jesus says but i say to you i inform you now of the full weight of what was intended in the mosaic law here's what i tell you if anyone is angry with his brother that's the one that's liable to judgment this is an unbelievable step for those who would be hearing this for the first time now the heart is laid open of sinful people for all to see. Because if everyone who is angry, I mean, get this, folks, if everyone who is angry is liable to judgment, who can escape? I mean, the Jews, many of them, like you and I, in fact, I would think all of us, could say, hey, I've never murdered check I've never killed anybody I've never lashed out in anger and taken another life check obedience I kept the law of God Jesus the king of this kingdom now says no you've missed the understanding because the kingdom is about the heart the law of Christ is addressed at the internal man it is dealing with the heart issues that then produce actions He says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. The heart of the murderer is a malicious, angry heart. And the guilt of a murderer is no different before God than the guilt of an angry heart. Grasp that. Let that sink in. God is equally offended. He is equally angered in holy wrath against the one who takes another life and the one who in his selfish, sinful heart is anger and malicious thought against another. It's the same guilt. Just a distinction for the sake of discussion this morning, it's not the same consequence. It is an eternal sense, and that's what we're going to talk about here. In an eternal sense, the guilt and the consequence are the same. But in a temporal sense, the consequences are quite different. Right? I trust you understand that. You're not going to be held accountable under the law of Christ to go turn yourself into the authorities for your anger at your wife earlier today in the ride to church. Say, I've got to admit it. Before God, I murdered her. Um, I didn't actually do it, but really I should be punished as if I did. no. Before God, the guilt is equal and the eternal punishment is the same. And yet in a temporal sense, actions have different consequences. In fact, that's exactly what he illustrates in the remainder of verse 22. Now, before we jump into the next section, let's pause at angry. And I want to just make a quick note for you. Anger is spoken of as an absolute in the argument, right? Everyone who's angry and there's no qualifications put on that anger. Now, if you're a Bible student... Many of you are. That should bring your mind to question certain actions and attitudes that were attributed to Christ himself that were marked by anger, right? So we, there are sections of our New Testament where we see Christ is angry in his earthly life. And furthermore, we see the character of God is wrathful. He is violently angry at sinners for their mockery of his name. And so this is a good opportunity for us to let Scripture guide our interpretation of any single passage. So we want the whole of Scripture to help us understand a smaller portion of our New Testaments. Right? This is important. This is called the analogy of faith. And I trust that this is something that you do on a regular basis. Otherwise, you could come away from these verses and have a misunderstanding of what's here and then condemn further and later what we see to be true about christ so let's look at just the passages that we see about jesus and his anger let's flip over to matthew chapter 21 and let's look at one of these passages matthew chapter 21 verse 12 jesus enters the temple jerusalem And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, "Is it written, my house shall be? Isn't it written, or is it written, my house shall be called a house of prayer? But you make it a den of robbers or thieves." Then the blind and lame come to him, without any break in our paragraphs. The blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. And then the chief priest and the scribes see what is being said about him and they're filled with wrath and envy but jesus enters the temple and we've seen this on several occasions he enters the temple he's made a whip or a scourge he flips tables over he throws stuff he demolishes and he looks in these passages in the worst case scenario like some of us when we are enraged at whatever particular circumstances enrage us So we start thinking, wow, well, was Christ sinful in this attitude and action? What about Mark chapter 3, just a few pages over? Mark chapter 3, in verse 1. He enters the synagogue. Man's there with a withered hand, and they watch Jesus to see whether he would heal them on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So they ask him, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, or to do harm, to save a life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked at them with, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to them, said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They want to kill him. Jesus is filled with anger towards these religious hypocrites, the Pharisees. But then we see this contrast. If we flip over to 1 Peter, which is very near the end of your New Testament, 1 Peter, you'll find it just after James and just before 2 Peter and 1 John. 1 Peter chapter 2, this description of our Lord. Speaking of his innocence, he committed no sin, verse 22 says, neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is the Father. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like straying sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The thought here in verse 23 that's important to our discussion is that when Jesus was wronged personally, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, spit upon, nailed to a tree, when he had thorns crushed down on his skull, his response was not one of anger in the face of personal attack. In fact, the contrast that we see through these passages helps us understand what we find in Matthew chapter 5. Because the anger that is forbidden, the anger that is the very heart of the murderer, that anger is derived from the personal offense of another towards ourselves. It is with our own selfish intent at its base. It is not anger based on an affection and a devotion to the holiness and the purity of God himself. It is not an anger based on the desire for righteousness And justice to be seen in the world. That is a godly anger. But here we find the anger of the murderer that is addressed towards another human being. His brother is the description. It is the analogy of faith that helps us understand and put into a box the anger that is given here as the wickedness of the heart by our Lord Jesus it's a heart issue. Anger in the heart will bring judgment from God. Liable to judgment. Now there's been a misunderstanding, and maybe you've fallen into this as I have. I've always understood that verse twenty two was kind of degrees of I don't know, degrees of sin and then degrees of punishment. So if you're angry with your brother, you'll be liable to judgment. If you insult your brother, this third part of the verse, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the Sanhedrin or the council jewish council that is the human uh, rulers of their community and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell fire i think the best understanding of this passage is not a a gradual incline of guilt and of punishment but rather three illustrations that all present the same point that the heart of anger is equally punishable before God as the very act of murder itself. So whether it's anger within you, you will be liable to judgment before God. If you turn to raka, maybe your translation says, or insults, blockhead, you fool, those are all used in this section. It's Aramaic word for empty. Good for nothing is the New American Standards translation. If you turn to insults, then you'll be liable to the council. That is, the human leadership around you will recognize what you've done, and you'll be liable to answer to them as well as to God. And whoever says you fool, ultimately these will all end in the same. They will be liable to Gehenna, or the Valley of Hinnon. Gehenna was representation of hell itself. So in other words, all of these point back to the same point they are not uh, divided up and gradually inclining in their value or in their punishment as sin but rather they are all equal components as jesus is preaching he's just rattling off illustrations that would illustrate for us that anger is seen by god as equal in the heart condition as murder itself in the physical reality So these are not progressive in degree or guilt. They are illustrations for us to understand. And the end of all of them is the same potential, that of hell fire. Ultimately, folks, if you live an angry life, if your heart reflects anger as a characteristic, then you have breached the law of Christ and your end will be hell for an eternity. We don't get to walk away and say, "I've never murdered anyone. I'm a decent person." And maybe you've heard someone say that. Well, we're all sinners. Well, I'm not. I don't know if I call myself a sinner. I'm a pretty good guy. I've never murdered anyone. I've never, uh, whatever the other pet big sins are. Never committed adultery. I've never done whatever X, Y, Z. And yet, the reality that we're going to find throughout the remainder of chapter five is that Jesus and the kingdom is concerned about the heart condition that leads to actions of sinful behavior. In fact, listen to this quote from D.A. Carson, commentator. Carson says, These verses make one great point. The Old Testament law forbidding murder must not be thought adequately satisfied when no blood has been shed. Rather, the law points toward a more fundamental problem, man's vilifying anger. Jesus, by his own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer is in reality hanging over the wrathful, spiteful, and contemptuous heart of man. What man then stands uncondemned? Rhetorical question, none of us. When our lives are held up to the law of Christ, the law of the kingdom, the demands of the kingdom, we stand condemned before him. He finishes this section with these illustrations, and these are helpful to us. The application, third facet of our time together this morning, is in two illustrations. Here's our response. Here's what should be our our motivation, our energy after encountering the reality that anger is as guilty before God as murder itself. So, verse 23 begins, If you're offering your gift at the altar, that is at the temple, This is pre-A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So both of these illustrations, interestingly enough, do not address our anger with someone else. They address the weight of our understanding of anger that someone else has towards us. So in reality of knowing what God thinks and what the kingdom perspective is on the heart that is angry towards another, Here's our response leave your gift verse 24 before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift The illustration is if you are understanding properly what the kingdom demands are upon the heart Then you will not just go on your way in formal worship But you will cease what you're doing and you'll make a beeline to correct the issue Because of the weight of the sinful guilt that comes when there is anger towards one another. Now as a side note from this illustration, this first one, ritual and form mean nothing when the heart is defiled by sin, okay? And I just just jump over with me to today and understand as a side note, as a secondary application of what Christ is teaching, there is no value in ritual or in formal worship. There is no value in you dressing nicely this morning, and you did, and coming and joining together with others, and singing and praying and studying the Bible, there's no value in that if your heart is defiled by sin. It's not that there's no value. It's just that sin needs to be taken care of. The relationship needs to be restored to the Father before you come into the presence of God himself in corporate worship. Jesus uses this illustration from Old Testament Jerusalem, Old Testament Judaism, there at the temple, go and make it right, then come back and offer your gifts. Second illustration is a totally separate issue. The first one is worship and bringing something before God. The second one is a legal guilt and it's debt. This is a debtor's court that's being discussed here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, that is the one you're indebted to while you're going with him to court. So along the way, make sure that you take every effort to set things right. Why? Because your accuser, lest he hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. For truly I say to you, you'll never get out until you have paid the last penny. And this is how it worked in this early Roman system. If you were indebted to someone and they called you for your debts, and given you every opportunity, they could take you to court for your debt the court would rule that you needed to pay back every single penny that you had ever borrowed from this, this loan. The interesting part was your sentence in needing to pay back every penny was the debtor's prison where you would be locked away in a disgusting cell in the worst of human conditions and then in your locked up condition be required to pay every single cent back to your, your loan. There's no way out. So your family and your friends who wanted to see you get out of prison, you hoped, would go to work and slave and do everything they could to pay back every single cent to the one to whom you were indebted. The issue here is the same as the first. If you understand the weight of the anger of another towards you, then deal with it. You would not just waltz into court knowing that you have an opportunity to mend the relationship, that you could set things in order so that you would not go to prison, you would not suffer the consequences of your debt. If you understood this, you would go and deal with the breach between you and your accuser. The point here in both of these illustrations is that anger has serious ramifications. Therefore, we should have serious responses to anger in our lives whether it be others anger towards us or our own anger towards others as kingdom citizens let me warn you about something here this is a good spot to do it verse 23 and 24 are one illustration verse 24 25 26 are the second illustration sometimes we have a hard time with parables and illustrations in our new testament just from a bible study standpoint don't ever feel the demand to make an illustration or a parable walk on all fours. My seminary prof always used as the word picture. You don't need to make it walk on all fours. Jesus is illustrating. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's making a point to show the effect that this should have, the result in our lives. If we understood the law for what it, it truly intends for us, in that the heart is at the center, then these illustrations would help us see We would be serious about dealing with anger in the lives of those around us or directed towards us or within us towards others. We run into some real issues if we try to make these illustrations stand up and walk. And we start thinking, well, who's the accuser? And who is the judge? And who is the guard? And what is the prison? And what is the penny that will be paid back? And the result in this case historically the result of trying to make the illustrations that Jesus is using to punch home the application from this paragraph has been the doctrine of purgatory and of indulgences. Okay? Purgatory, place where you go in the Roman Church theology, place that is the intermediate state of purgatory, you're being punished but not totally and you can get out of there. You can get out of there with prayers. You can get out of there with indulgences. What a clever idea. If your family members pay enough money to the church, then it cuts off a few years from purgatory for you, and your last penny can be paid in a much quicker fashion. Okay, That's making an illustration stand up and walk when Jesus was trying to make a clear point about the result of our understanding of the full Weight, the fulfilled weight of the law of christ so the kingdom is concerned with the heart and where the heart is defiled the pursuit of reconciliation should be desperate and persistent drop everything to set this right because we understand what's at stake and we don't do this folks i mean really let's just get down on the carpet let's just be real we don't do this right some anger in our hearts it's okay i mean that big of a deal. We'll get over it. Don't get over the guilt of sin that is the same heartbeat that leads to the action of murder. We deal with it. We see it as an offense to our Christ. We see it as an offense to the one who has saved us and transformed us and brought us into this kingdom. We need to take stock of our attitude and our perspective on our own heart condition and not be satisfied to say, I've not let my anger get the best of me. What does that mean? I didn't break anything. I didn't hit my spouse. I didn't beat my child. So I'm okay. I'm all right. That's no different than the pharisaical understanding that if you didn't literally, physically kill someone, then you were not under the judgment. The law of Christ places the demand on your heart and on my heart. With Carson, we would say, who stands uncondemned? This is an amazing demand for the kingdom. And as we read in verse 48, perfection is the standard, the perfection of God himself. Okay, so what? So we come to the end of this paragraph. This is some serious bad news, right? We are stuck in a very difficult situation we see our lives before this passage. We've laid our hearts open, I trust, in submission. We see our anger for what it is. We know that we are in danger. We are liable to hell fire. So I wrote down these thoughts in conclusion. We are guilty before the holy judge of heaven. We are guilty for our murderous heart of anger. We're guilty. That There's no way around it from verse 21 to 26. I'm guilty. We're only allowed entrance into the kingdom on the basis of a perfection that is matched against the divine perfection of the Father himself. So I am really in a difficult situation. So what does this lead to? This demand of the kingdom should lead us to an understanding that we have no ability within ourselves to accomplish the righteousness that is demanded of us. We have no ability in and of ourselves do what the demands of the law of Christ place on our hearts. And when we reach the point where we understand that there is nothing I can do to earn merit, I cannot, I cannot be good enough, I cannot fight anger enough to ever overcome the guilt of my murderous heart, then we are at the first place. We are at the starting point of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed Are the poor in spirit? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the message of the kingdom, the message of the Messiah, the King of the kingdom, is that the heart must be broken, it must be brought to the end of itself, and by faith in the King himself and his substitutionary death, we can be brought into the righteousness of Christ. So our sin demands a punishment. And our only hope is a perfect substitute. We need someone, we need someone to live in the perfection of the Father. And then to stand before the Father and say, credit my perfection to this sinful person. That's our only hope. It's our only hope, folks. That's the glory of the good news of the gospel. The glory of the good news of the gospel is 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The kingdom is made up of those who have seen their sin for what it is, have come to the end of themselves, and have turned to the king and placed their faith in his death on their behalf. That's what this is all driving us towards. Romans 5, our justification in Christ has made peace with God. The treaty has been signed at the cross for those who believe. John three sixteen, the most common verse ever. Those who would believe and place their, their faith and confidence in Christ, the very Son of God who came to die as the replacement for sinful death, those ones will be saved. John 14:6. Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. No man, no woman comes to the kingdom until they have seen themselves for who they are under the law of Christ, been brought to the end of themselves and then turned in faith to the very Messiah himself and been rescued from the guilt of their sins. So what about us, Christians? What about us, kingdom citizens? Are we rescued then permanently from any anger in our lives? Well, no. And there are many around us to your left, to your right, that know differently. Has Christ saved you? Yes. Do you still see anger flare up in your heart? Yes. Do you understand the weight of your sin? I trust you do. And when you see the murderous heart of anger... You should be quick to repent and confess that as sin. But you are no longer outside of the family of God. This is a word picture. For you are not at war with God. If you have been justified by faith in Christ, you have now been brought into the family of God. So you are not now dealing with sin at the level of, I need to make peace with a warring God against me. But rather, I'm in the house of the king. I'm an adopted son of the king and I've sinned. The result of that sin is not that you're put back out on the outside. It's not that you're thrown back out into the midst of the war. But the relationship with your father has been breached. And it is the desire of every kingdom citizen to live his life in such a way as to constantly pursue a pure conscience before his father in heaven. And 1 John 1.9 rings true we confess our sin he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness first john 1 dealing with believers this is the law of christ we need to see the grace of christ for what it is it is the liberating power to live out the realities and the demands the character the effect of the kingdom what happened at the cross Grace was offered to those who would place their faith in Christ, that they might be rescued, adopted, pardoned, and brought into the family of God, and that in turn, continual grace would be poured out from that cross, not further justifying them, not making them more a part of the family, but growing them and developing them, sanctifying them, so that they might, as a progression, reflect more and more and more the image of Christ himself. So as believers who struggle with anger, may we see ourselves as dead to sin because of the cross and empowered by grace and the Spirit of God to live in the truth. Galatians 5, verse 16. This is the first of the demands of the kingdom. In chapter 5, there are many more. And I trust that God's grace will be abundantly obvious in your life, believer, in my life. This week as we lean on the very Savior who has rescued us for the ability through his divine spirit who is with us to live out these demands for his glory. If you're here this morning and you're not a part of the kingdom, you've never come to the end of yourself, in fact, this has all been so repulsive to you and so arrogantly dogmatic from the pages of scripture, then I would in- entreat you, I would call upon you as a friend and as one who wants to bear the truth to you that today is your opportunity for salvation and you may never have one again And if you will humble yourself if you will turn from your sin and you will place your faith in Christ as the substitute before a holy God he will save you that's his promise that's a gracious promise undeserved by sinful people So whether you're here this morning as a believer and are desiring to continue in your development, in your growth, in reflecting the law of Christ, reflecting the character of Christ, whether you have never known Christ and you've never been a part of this kingdom, I want to see God's work in your heart this morning. For the glory of his name for eternity.